0: Welcome, everyone, to today's podcast, What's Your Delta, MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development, with your host, Janice Palaganis, who is the Associate Professor of Health Professions Education and the Associate Director of the PhD Program in Health Professions Education, along with Peter Kahn, the Associate Provost for Academic Affairs at the MGH Institute of Health Professions.
1: Welcome to What's Your Delta, MGH Institute's three tips for faculty development. You're here with Janice Palaganes and
0: Peter Kahn coming from the Zoom room.
1: (laughs) How are you doing, Peter?
0: I'm good. I feel like I've read all the books behind you because I've become so familiar (laughs) with those shelves.
1: You're looking at all of them
0: i I should have a big one that said theory on it i don't
1: know where that one was oh this is one of my favorites by otto sharmer Theory, you today we have someone that i would love to introduce um we have bobby and Adair white i never say your full name i feel like your mom's saying your name ba so so uh BA goes by BA, (laughs) and she's um, an adjunct associate professor here at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital Institute of Health Professions. And um, she works with me in the Health Professions Education Program, teaching in the master's and in the PhD. And BA is my go to person when it comes to emotional intelligence, team. Um, We have these interesting, very long, deep discussions around conflict in teams and how to teach interprofessional teams how to work together, trust in teams. Um, And I just, I enjoy our conversations, BA, and just knowing Peter, and it seems like we all have a similar interest in all of this. Um, I know this is going to be a really great and interesting conversation.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. I'm super excited. It's funny because I'm sitting here smiling and nodding as you're saying all of these things, like everybody can actually see that. So um, yes, I absolutely love chatting with Janice about all of these things. We've already spent an hour today talking about some of them, so we can continue that conversation here maybe.
0: I haven't had the opportunity to have many chats with you, BA, although I certainly know your name and your uh, accomplishments. Can you tell me, by extension, some of the listeners, your background? Because I I feel like we have an affinity there. I'm also a non-clinician in the health professions education world. So we all have our own stories of how we arrived here. What was your path?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I remember attending a a med ed conference um, because my path started in med ed. And they asked, you know, how did you get into medical education? And just about everybody in the room, non-clinicians, um, said I fell into it. It was a pretty, pretty common answer. Um, So I fell into medical education by way of student affairs and um, was in a health science center first and did student affairs for all of the health science center and then moved into the education side of things. My background is actually organizational psychology. My master's degree was organizational psychology, but I had an assistantship in student affairs and just Realized that that was a job, and I loved it. Um, so I kind of went that direction, and then kind of just stayed with medical education. So I say that I'm married to medicine. My my husband is a physician, and I like that we can collaborate on projects. We've published together, and we work on things together. Um, and then I've slowly moved into the health professions education component. Even in medical education, I did things on teaming and interprofessional teams, um, but I hadn't moved directly into health professions, education specifically. And and I've really been enjoying that, loving working with everybody at MGH. It's such an amazing culture.
0: I was going to say one of the hallmarks of the program at the Institute is that it's primarily online with some low residency requirements. Uh, So what was the transition like for you in light of the pandemic and the move to online? Did you have to make any adjustments to either your, your teaching or administrative roles?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I was still teaching with Texas A&M at the time, and I became in high demand very quick because uh, I was one of the few that had been teaching online. So I had to help them develop quite a bit of curriculum um, before I transitioned down and started working primarily with you guys. So I I didn't have to change a lot in that I was already teaching online. If anything, my my work became so much more demanding because a lot of people needed help with building their own curriculum.
1: You are a exemplar of the amazing benefits of Being online and working in online teams is—we wouldn't have been able to get someone so wonderful as you to be part of our team. If you, I mean, you don't live in Boston; you're in Texas, and it's—it's been really interesting, and especially because a lot of our students are local to you and not local to us. And having those conversations too when we're online with our students is interesting.
2: I do. I love the Northeast. So my master's degree, I did that in New Haven, University of New Haven. So I took many trips to Boston. I actually worked in Manhattan and really loved being on the East Coast. So whenever I saw this opportunity pop up, it was really an opportunity for me to still keep my foot in the world in the Northeast, see some friends. Uh, there's a direct Austin to Boston flight. So when COVID lets up, I'll get to come back up and visit some more. It just really was the perfect opportunity. Plus I love the culture and and the folks all up in the Northeast, it, it's a good reminder. I like the direct, frank attitude, and, and working with people that are <laughs>
1: humble, <laughs> humble and brilliant all at the same
2: time.
0: Which part is making you laugh, Janice? The direct, it's, frank, or humble? It's
1: the love. It's the love hate of you know the direct, humble <laughs> atmosphere. Brilliant, actually. I, I remember first moving here and thinking, "Wow, I I have never had." You know, I'd have these intelligent conversations at the grocery store and at the bus stop, which I just, you wouldn't find, you know, previously where I lived in California, so.
0: I'm wondering, does that difference translate into the health professions setting, or do they do education differently in Texas?
2: So, they don't do education differently in Texas, and that's something else, too. I actually live north of Austin in a smaller town. And I remember whenever I was first moving here, you know, mind you, I had moved from the Northeast and then I was living in a bigger city in Texas. And then my husband was moving me to central Texas, this little bitty town. And I thought, oh, it's going to be horrible. But I'm insulated in the health professions bubble where there are a lot of folks that are just like us. So so the education isn't that much different and the people aren't that much different because they've trained all over. They've trained all over the world. As a matter of fact, I was speaking with one of our students from Mayo, and he said, oh, I know one of your chairmen down there. He just transferred from Mayo. So, you know, we, we have a lot of culture and really interesting people here, too.
0: Yeah, part of my uh, pathway was through University of Oklahoma. That was my first faculty role. So I was in Norman. And I do remember feeling a little disappointed. I was, I was excited going to a new part of the country, new to me and I felt I would pick up on the sort of local mores and traditions, and there was a little bit of that with the sort of the Sooner State and the Native American influence, but then it was really just like the same chain stores I had seen in other parts of the country. It was, and then at the university, of course, it was very sophisticated like anywhere else. I was Little disappointed that there wasn't more (laughs) peculiarities about the place.
1: So, BA, I am dying to ask you about your fresh off the press book, Cultivating Leadership in Medicine. I have not gotten my hands on it yet, which I know you're sending me a copy. Tell us a little bit about it.
2: Yeah, so that book came out of a colleague of mine. I, I can't take the credit. That was her idea, Joanne Quinn. She is Amazing. She's down in Florida. And she teaches a leadership course. And she was really wanting a book to teach that course and was having the hardest time finding the right book to teach that course. And she and I talked quite a bit about it. And she was reaching out for some collaborators And of course, Janice, you know me, I'm a finisher and I like to write. So I reached back out and we started the project and really developed it for people to develop their leadership skills to teach. But then also in the back of the book, we've published people's programs, leadership programs. So if you're trying to start a new leadership program and you're not really sure where to begin, there's a lot of different programs that have contributed to the back as well. And the underlying theme is really emotional intelligence and leadership. So we really focus on EI and leadership and we tried to bring clinical components into it.
1: So did you help write all, like the entire book, all the chapters
2: not all of them. I actually was just looking at it. I think I wrote four of the chapters and then edited the remainder of the book with ah, Jordan. Okay.
1: But you you know it inside out, I'm guessing. And so, so my question is, what is your favorite chapter? It's funny that you ask.
2: You know, probably my favorite would be the one on Empathy. And really just because I, I'm i pretty sure that's the one that I did with somebody else. And it it wasn't one that I had planned on taking on originally. And I just really enjoyed it so much that he and I partnered together and worked on that together. So it, it might have been the experience more than the content.
0: I'm looking at the table of contents now. It just strikes me a leadership, particularly in medical education book 10, 20 years ago, would probably not have chapters called self-awareness, emotional intelligence, positive affect, renewal and resilience. It does seem that we've borrowed so much from the positive psychology world. I mean, how do you see that influencing the role of leaders today?
2: That is an excellent question and you've tapped into a little secret that Joe and I struggled with when we went to title the book. You know, initially we really wanted to put emotional intelligence in the title of the book and we were concerned that ultimately there might be some negative perceptions and people might not pick it up as readily if the type, you know, if it was titled that way. So, you know, we're still struggling with some of that. And I'm actually in the process of creating a, professional development curriculum for a department of surgery right now. And we're trying to steer away from some of those terms just because there still is some negative connotation in, that, in those areas. So we, we subtly sneak them in. And you know, once people really see the concepts working for them, then they buy into them. But I, I think you're right. I think it's still a little bit of a battle and a little bit of, of a negative perception of the soft side of medicine, as they would they would
0: say. So many of those principles, BA, apply not just to titular leaders. I'm thinking of some of the work our colleagues do on interprofessional collaboration within a team. It's good to have emotional intelligence there and empathy and communication and all the skills there. So is there something particular about the way it's used in leadership or are these concepts the same no matter where they're applied? They're the
2: same no matter where they're applied. And even though i focused quite a bit on leadership, I actually... I, I've been leaning more toward teaming just because I think that teaming is almost more reachable for folks. People are more more apt to look at teaming information than they are to look at leadership information. And I think that it applies not only across the, the work environment, but also personal. So often after a session that I've done, somebody will come up and say, oh my goodness, I needed this information last week whenever I was talking to my brother, blah, blah. You know, I, I think that all of these concepts can be applied just in every aspect of your life.
1: It's so interesting because, you know, like you're saying, Peter, in the past, in terms of leadership, Programs and courses, you wouldn't necessarily see courses or topics like this leading a chapter in, uh, you know, especially in medical education. And I feel like these skills here that you're talking about in each of the chapters the self awareness, empathy, power and influence, effective communication, coaching, renewal and resilience they're all things that are so, it's probably the most difficult skills to learn. And it's interesting because it's also the skills that wear you down in those leadership positions that, you know, you, you need to have these skills to be able to handle. Cause you know, often when you are in leadership positions, it's the relationships and the quote unquote drama that often leads to turnover and unhealthy teams. And if you can build these skills In addition to other leadership skills, it just makes sense that you would be even more successful as a leader. So I have a question around, you know, there's some people that just naturally have some of this. And what's more difficult? Taking someone who naturally has this and getting them to be in a leadership role and grooming them to be in a leadership role or someone who naturally has awesome management financial skills and is lacking some of these social competencies?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And and sometimes one person can't be all of it. Sometimes you need a little bit of a partnership and and pairing people together. The skills can be learned, which I think is ultimately your question. They can be learned, but somebody... Has to be the person that's learning them has to be willing to be coached and has to be willing and open to learn those things. They have to have the awareness that they need them as well. I, I think that's one of the hardest issues when you're working with somebody and they don't understand that they need to move or evolve or change in those ways. So it might be easier to, if I'm going to answer your question directly, I'm not good at that. I always that it depends. But if I'm going to answer your, your question directly, it might be easier to teach the other skills, you know, the finance and the whatnot than it is to teach the EI if people aren't interested in learning it.
0: Could you walk me through some of the learning activities that I or a reader would go through if I wanted to beef up my EI?
2: Yeah, if you wanted to to beef up your emotional intelligence, one of the the biggest things, you know, you have, you know, your core aspects, you have the self-awareness, you have self-management, you have other awareness, and then, you know, the relationship management. Probably the key component where people break down, a lot of folks can be aware, but are they willing to manage? You know, you have people that say things like, Yeah, I know. I just, I lose my temper over people that don't get things done quickly. Okay. That's great that you're aware of it, but now are you going to manage it? I think that's where most often what I've seen in health professions teams, that's where the, the breakdown is, is people not willing to manage it. So that would be practice on managing those emotions. Once you get to the point where you recognize that you have that emotion, taking the time to recognize how you respond to it and then changing that which takes time and sometimes an accountability person. So having somebody help you with accountability and really just documenting what it is that you do at the end of your day. So that's something that you could definitely do. Coaching is a huge component. Having somebody work with you and kind of go through what it is that you need. The relationship aspect, looking at where your relationships break down what you can do. But this all goes back to somebody being interested in doing it. And if they're interested, then it can happen. I've, I've seen some folks, some pretty tough folks that you wouldn't think would be willing to make changes, make changes and evolve.
1: I like this question because I often wonder too, I mean, I just reflecting on my own personal experience learning some of EI and practicing EI and seeing and understanding the importance of it and being aware of it, it took so many unpleasant life experiences and pleasant life experiences that I do often wonder, is that the critical part of learning these types of skills? Do you have to go through experience? Because, you know, I for example, I could read a book on trust, let's say, Mm -hmm. and I could be aware and know all of the trust models out there, but it's not until I go into an experience that I take the time to reflect and make sense of what I've read. And so is there a way to steepen the learning curve for our you know, graduating practitioners or the practitioners that we're, you know, putting into teams to be able to, to do some of these things and appreciate them?
2: One of the things that people have to be able to do if they want to, you know, because you can't, you're right, you can't time when you're going to go through things and when you're going to learn them is being able to learn from others. There are some folks in this world who can absolutely learn from watching others You can say, oh, I saw that and I I don't think I want to respond that way. I don't want to react that way. And I think I've seen that in myself before. So being open to looking at how others are modeling, what they're doing, and and hopefully modeling the positive behaviors. But that is one way to, to expedite that. It depends on the type of learner you are. If you're not able to learn from others' mistakes or others' positive modeling, then that'll be a little more difficult.
0: Is this something that should be part of the curriculum first degree profession students? Should it go to undergraduates? Should it go to high school? When do we need to be introducing this?
2: That's a great question. And I'm a big fan of embedding everything. I don't think it should be separate necessarily. I think it should be embedded within whatever it is that you're learning and very application based. And I think it can start, I'm already doing it with my children. So, I think it can start as young as you're willing to introduce it. Helping your children be aware of others. You know, they'll come home and complain about the situation, helping them with perspective taking. Well, have you considered that maybe this is why this person did this? You know, think about what their motives were, what was going on, talking to them about the relationships that they have with people. I think that this can start as early as, you know, kids are able to have the conversations. Now, I'll admit my kids sometimes stare at me blankly and I'll say, I've lost you, haven't I? And they'll say, yes. But I I think it starts as soon as you're ready to introduce it, just embedding it into application and real life.
0: So what's dinner like in the White House world?
2: (laughs) My poor children and my husband too. He's a physician. I coach him all the time. I tell him he's great at receiving feedback. I'm so impressed. I think it's the... uh, The process of education that has beaten him down so much that he receives my feedback so well
0: (laughs) i know that i mean what's nice about this is how integrative it is like you're saying it pops up in different parts of your life but that can also be exhausting if you're always being self-aware if you're always self-correcting if you're always trying to model can you ever take a break
2: yes So that's when you find your people, right? You have your safe zones, your safe people, and you can just say, I'm not on right now. And I'm probably about to say something totally inappropriate. So please love me and be okay with that. You know, you just, you make sure you find your safe spaces, but you're absolutely right. Whenever I am, you know, in a department that I'm helping with some of these aspects, I'm extra cautious about the things that I say and the things that I do because I'm trying to model the. Appropriate behaviors, which is difficult because I like to joke and have a good time too, and that's how I build rapport. But definitely, it does it does become exhausting, and you definitely have to take a step back and recharge.
0: Just one, one more in on this line. Maybe this is implicit in what you're saying, but just to bring out, what is the cost? Of bad leadership, if someone doesn't do all the things that you're pointing out?
2: Yeah. So there's quite a bit of literature out there that talks about poor leadership, and especially in health professions. You know, if you have poor leadership, you lose trust. You don't have people that are bought into the mission or the vision. You, I mean, just just about everything and and really ultimately potential negative patient outcomes. There are some studies out there that talk about resonant leadership, which has to do with emotional intelligence and leadership and how that can really build people up and help them with job satisfaction and ensure that they're not, I guess, kind of, spiraling down even in a time of change so it poor leadership leadership that isn't considerate of followership can have huge negative effects
0: i'm just trying to think about all the leaders who i've encountered i think i'm not in a very are you gonna
1: uh, name names peter (laughs) well i couldn't because (laughs) have only
0: positive things to say and i think these are people who um to, to your earlier point B about people who fell into medical education, I think people who fall into educational leadership don't necessarily set out that way. They, they make their their fame in something else. But I've been so fortunate by leaders. I mean, people who I've mentors, people I have worked under for, they didn't have your book, but they intuited it and they realized where their blind spots were and sought their own resources to fill in the gaps. And it, maybe I subconsciously sort of selected for those people who, who knew they had to improve themselves and not just rely on the traditional authority and command.
2: And that is amazing because that's not what I hear often, that people have a long line of previous amazing bosses who just got it. But I think you're right. I think some people do. They intuitively can figure out, you know what, that didn't work out. That conversation didn't go like I thought it was going to. What, what can I do? I think that's one of the biggest things that people forget to do is ask, what was my role in that situation? Instead of, oh, that person's difficult to deal with, or, oh, they just never want to hear what I have to say. They don't pause to say, what was my role and how can I adjust that and fix that? To your point earlier, that can become exhausting if you're always analyzing that way. But if it's a big enough situation, I think it's important.
0: What comes next now that you've edited the definitive book on leadership and medical education?
2: That's a great question. I'm actually working on some research regarding leadership during COVID. And we're looking at emotional intelligence and leadership during COVID. So that's one of the things that I'm working on. I'm working on this really cool project with Janice she invited me in on about conflict and interprofessional teams and teaching. And she can talk a little bit more about that. But I was super excited that we have a lot of similar interests. I tease her that before I met her, because I cyberstalk people before I meet them. So before I met her, (laughs) I read her CV and I thought we're going to be friends. She's (laughs) such a cool person. So I was very excited to be invited in on this project that she's working on. I'm so excited
1: to have you as a research partner, VA. You're amazing.
2: I love it. But yeah, really just one of my personal goal is to always help people accomplish their goals, provided they align with something that's of interest to me, right? And so really kind of anything that falls into my lap is
1: next on the docket.
0: Well, now I want to hear what the joint project is, Janice.
1: Oh, <laughs> so basically what we are writing about is how your emotions as an educator can get in the way of resolving conflict within an IPE group. And we give strategies and we analyze a case and, and analyze concepts that could occur in interprofessional group conflict and give strategies on how to deal with that either be prepared to deal with that or to deal with it in the moment.
0: Mm, I'll have to wait to hear the results.
1: We could do a podcast on that one.
2: <laughs> Maybe that's the next book. That's what Janice has been talking about.
0: Well, is this is a good time for me to try to wrap up some of the takeaways because it seems like so much of what we talked about applies to everyone who would listen to this. Um, but specifically... Um, What I appreciated in in BA's conversation was this reorienting of leadership as emotional intelligence that that really needs to be seen as the, the core of what leadership means. And I find that helpful because it also in- integrates leadership into everything, whether you're mentioning family, personal relationships, other parts of your life, and why should leadership be something separate and emotional intelligence helps to make that bridge. So I'd say that was the first tip that I'm taking away. The other good news about that is that it's something that can be learned. I know leadership, because it's fetishized so much and you know we've got political campaign season going on, it's often thought about as charisma or something inborn, but you really present a model where leadership is something that can be cultivated and strengthened if someone is willing. So you need that self-awareness. And sometimes I hear you saying it has to be smuggled in because they may not be (laughs) apt to accept these terms or these concepts because we all have some traditional notions of leadership. And then the third thing that I found insightful was that leadership is not lonely. You kept talking about accountability, a coach, your people, safe zones, uh, teams and teaming, because we think of leadership as that sole figure, whether on top of an organization or in a group or a classroom setting, but really you've helped shift the idea of leadership to being something that's shared across people and together makes it more effective. So does that, am I capturing accurately what you've been trying to share with us?
2: That was perfect. It's like the editor of the uh, article that I was telling you about earlier. Awesome.
1: See? <laughs> Peter Peter's so great at that. <laughs>
0: well, you also mentioned that idea of accountability that really modeling this idea, BA, that you're aware of your strengths, you know, through the conceptualization, the writing, But the detail of editing and proofreading is not where you excel. And so you consciously seek to partner with people who do have that strength. So together, you get all the the skills down.
2: Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. This was fun. Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening to our podcast, What's Your Delta? MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. We hope you come back and listen to our future podcasts with your host Janice Palaganis and Peter Kahn of the MGH Institute of Health Professions.